This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, back from the pub and fully recovered. I hope you managed to get out and enjoy the sun slash snow at some point yesterday. Uh, today, coming up on the podcast, uh, public inquiries. How do you uh, make them work? How long should they take? Everyone knows that there's going to be a public inquiry into the last 12 months and the handling of the pandemic. But when will it ever report? Uh, we'll hear from Lord Savile, who carried out the Bloody Sunday inquiry, which lasted more than a decade and cost almost £200 million. Uh, we'll hear from uh, him in a moment in our big thing. But first, it's our columnist panel. And as ever, it's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. That's Daniel Finkstein and David Ivanovich. We've not all been together like this for ages, because uh, I no. was off and David was off. Obviously, D- Danny, being a trooper, just keeps on going. Um, uh, let's um, let's start with uh, Shirley Williams. The sad news uh, that she uh, passed away yesterday at the age of ninety. But you both you both knew her. Uh, start with you first of all, Danny. Your your memories of Shirley Williams. Yeah, I did. Um, I was uh, chairman of the Young Social Democrats as one of my first roles in politics. So really got to know Shirley Williams in my in my late teens, in my early 20s. Um, and she remained actually a very, um, a very open and, um, uh, you know, pleasant and um, interesting person to talk to. Uh, even as I politically moved, and she didn't. Um, and, you know, I was very struck, probably the last time I saw her was maybe just before COVID, um, in, in the Lords, and I had a drink with her, and I, and I was just very struck by how sort of welcoming and pleasant she was, considering that we'd had political differences in the meantime. Um, so she was someone I did much admire. I think she made a real contribution to British public life. I think sometimes she was right and sometimes she wasn't. Um, and I had political, you know, as I said, I had political differences with her. Um, but I think that she believed fundamentally in a kind of decent, moderate, uh, liberal Britain, uh, and that is a, um, you know, a vision that, uh, I, you know, I, 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 you know, I would go with approbation. 
Uh, what about you, David? Your well, I didn't know her. I didn't know her so well. I met her a couple of times. I maybe met her first rather earlier than than Danny. When I got to the National Union of Students, where I was on the executive and then became the president. But just before that, she'd been Secretary of State for Education in a Labour government. Uh, and of course, when Margaret Thatcher took power in 1979, and then that very long period of Conservative government, uh, in the, in, in, into the early part of which dropped the SDP. It was a period of real confusion because people on the left and centre-left really didn't understand how to cope with politics, what was going on. There were big fissures. I went into that kind of period a kind of supporter of Tony Benn. I thought Tony Benn was a kind of really clever guy and he had the answers. And I suppose I emerged from it something of a supporter of Shirley Williams. And it wasn't just her politics, really, or her expression of her politics, but there was also something actually about her. Firstly, of course, she was one of a relatively small band of women politicians at that time. They really were a small band of women politicians. I mean, that's what made Margaret Thatcher's rise to power so utterly remarkable. It was an extraordinary thing, which is hard to explain, really to people uh, now how extraordinary how extraordinary it was but it was also about her demeanor shirley williams uh danny did i do i remember rightly that she had these incredible blue eyes or have i just made that have <laughs> no, i just I made that so. up uh, no, she did she, I, if she, did, did she she did no that's right so i just want to kind of recall this because i did meet her a couple of times she was one of these politicians who would look you straight in the eye, maintain yes. eye contact for all the time that she was talking to you. For every moment you were with her, you really felt, even if you were kind of lowly kind of, you know, student lefty, that you were the most important person in the room. This is a really important political technique. But she seemed to kind of carry it off with great sincerity. The other thing that she had was that lovely voice. Her voice, you know, you could just kind of play it all the time. It's always got a chuckle just coming at the end of any sentence, <laughs> even if when it's a kind of serious sentence. So that just made her a pleasure to talk to and a real pleasure to I, listen to. I agree. I, 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 the other thing she had was this sort of, which was kind of quite beguiling, was she was quite chaotic. Um, and so um, one of, I, I texted a friend of mine who also knew her and said, uh, you know, um, she is actually now really the late Shirley Williams because that used to be the, um, that used to be the joke we always made about her. Um, and um, interestingly, she, she, she used to sort of be a bit irritated by this description, but in her memoirs, she acknowledged that it was actually true the other thing that was quite striking for me about her memoirs that there were in there were bits of my political life which had loomed extremely large to me they were really important and when i read shirley williams's biography they were quite confused the account of those events and i realized that's because they were in her political life totally minor it was pretty <laughs> salutary to me um she did live really an extraordinary political life and um you know just for that alone uh, deserves uh, remembering um and just the way that she came back in the crosby by-election from that um from her defeat in the 1979 election, her bravery, actually, against her own mm. instincts in changing political party and in making that, you know, work at least for a period in terms of changing politics and actually in terms of moderating the Labour Party, which was what she was really interested yeah. in doing. It really was quite an extraordinary political career. Yeah, she was the one whose departure from the Labour Party really, really hurt other moderates within Labour. I mean, uh, David Owen was seen as, I know he's a good uh, friend of yours, Danny, but he was seen as being very, very brilliant and t very arrogant. Bill Rogers, who was a, apparently an extremely nice man, 
uh, was actually seemed to be a bit kind of rebarbative, and Roy Jenkins was, uh, uh, and this could take too long, but Roy Jenkins was Roy Jenkins, a very kind of particular form of taste you had to have uh, in order to really appreciate Roy Jenkins. But Shirley, she just had, and she had a, she had what you can only describe as a modern touch. She bridged the period between the kind of immediate uh, post-war period and the emerging modern period really well. She was in many, many ways a very modern politician. Yeah. The thing that I really remember, and I, I didn't know it nearly as well, as well as either of you, but my experience, particularly of being at Lib Dem conference and having in, uh, uh, interactions with her, is, is you know, like I said, often not necessarily on time, but when she did turn up, she turned up with a sort of a busyness and a determination. This was a proper political party that ought to be doing proper things in government. I mean, partly because she had been in cabinet before. Uh, but the, the sense that, you know, sometimes people, there was, there was a sort of part of the Lib Dems who just quite enjoy the social aspect or whatever it is but no, no real no real belief that the thing that they're discussing is anything other than a nice afternoon at the seaside but she was someone who felt that you know politics was important and you can only get anything done if you were in government to do it um uh which it, which actually meant that she did stand out amongst some of her some of her colleagues <laughs> yeah absolutely um, uh, and what about, there's been a lot of um, uh, written and said in the last 24 hours uh, since we, we found out that Shirley Williams had died, that she, she was sort of the greatest prime minister that we, we never had. Is this just something that we bestow on any former politician uh, once they, they've passed? <laughs> yes, it is. And it's a question of whether or not it's a real, um, it's a real category. Uh, since one of the qualities of becoming prime minister is just actually the ability to become prime minister. Um, and um, <laughs> that requires certain, you know, so if you look at uh, Theresa May um, and you evaluate her, one of the things about her is she did the things that were necessary to become prime minister in those particular circumstances. Um, and, and Shirley didn't. And one of the things, you know, there are, there are numerous events in Shirley Williams's political career where you could say maybe she lacked the steel to do it, one of which being uh, not resigning when Roy Jenkins resigned in the early 1970s and therefore maybe not gaining the leadership of the of the centre-right at that point and, and later not taking the leadership of the SDP, whose history might have been different if she had done that and it was what David Owen and you know other Owenites like me wanted her to do. Um, so I think that... I think that um, it, it, she maybe lacked a little bit of the steel necessary, but as a and and the other thing she lacked was a degree of organisation, uh, organising <laughs> capacity. Although that hasn't stopped Boris Johnson, um, and um, you know, uh, so you can become prime minister without without that, and maybe the system would have organised her in those circumstances. Well, we know from experience that, in fact, the, obviously the, the, the base, best prime minister we never had was, of course, Jeremy Corbyn. Is the the famous uh, not at all um, uh, silly uh, competition we did last uh, September, August, September, uh, where he even filmed an acceptance speech after I declared he was the best prime minister we never had. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, never mind, never mind. Uh, let's move on because there's something else I want to talk uh, to you about. Let's talk about this. Yes, the Royal Yacht. That's what I want to talk to you about. The recurring Tory fantasy of the Royal Yacht over the weekend. I mean, it's mainly the Telegraph, let's be honest, which keeps banging on about this. Tory MP Jake Berry declaring that, um, I mean, they never miss an opportunity, the, the, the Royal Yachters. Uh, Honouring Prince Philip would be a Royal Yacht Britannia replacement, uh, with a Royal Yacht, Yacht Britannia replacement would be an enduring tribute. 
What is it? What is it about um, uh, this this particular? There's a sort of particular strain of conservatism added obsession with yachts. Yeah, I wanted to ask Danny this. You see, because when Danny said, you know, Shirley Williams was right on some things and wrong on other things, I presume he means that she was wrong not to join the Conservative Party. So off he goes. Uh, He leaves the SDP, joins the Conservative (laughs) Party to find himself in a party full of people who keep on wanting to bring back the Royal Yacht Britannia. Uh, that's the party he's in. So, Danny, explain this to me because I, I honestly Williams don't think I don't understand it. I certainly certainly don't think Shirley Williams should have joined the Conservative Party. Look, I I I, I was actually involved when I because I was working with John Major at the time when this was you know this was originally at its height and the question of whether the yacht should be renewed. And there were there are some genuine public policy arguments for having this for having a raw yacht uh, oh. in terms of trading there are but uh, in my view um the uh at the time i thought it was symbolically a ridiculous thing for the conservative party to be in favor of and ultimately they it wasn't renewed because the public policy arguments the other way are, pr- are stronger it's too expensive basically for what it will achieve um this i think you know another example of this was james wilde's um ludicrous attack on um on uh, Tim Davey for the BBC's report not having the flag in. Um, all political coalitions have uh, ridiculous uh, people saying ridiculous things in them. And that, the answer to your question, David, is very simple. The SDP consisted of a few people who were more like me than a big, broad political party. And as a result, it couldn't win an election because most people aren't actually uh, Jewish members of the House of Lords from Pinner, right? Uh, so the you have to... Uh, political party have to be broad enough and that means they have to consist of people who agree with me and people who do not agree with me and uh, otherwise you can't build a coalition that can actually do anything. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn tried to create a coalition of people who entirely agreed with him as a result of which he got absolutely smashed in a general election because there aren't that many people who do that and that is the answer to your question as to why I would (laughs) prefer to be in a political party which consists of some people who occasionally say ridiculous things that I don't agree with. (laughs) I mean, the thing that struck me, because when this blew up at the weekend, somebody pointed out the main problem with the idea of having a, a royal yacht to go around and do trade deals and that sort of thing is most capital cities are pretty landlocked. Correct. So, um, So if you do want to go to visit other governments and do trade deals, you're going to find yourself quite a long way from the action if you go it by was... boat. It was just to take them to the Gulf, wasn't it? I mean, that's the that, that that's the terrible truth. That's the terrible truth about it, which is that you just go around your, you know, kind of your your fellow potentates, etc., uh, uh, in uh, in the Gulf, and you kind of get off at I don't know Sharjah or Dubai or, or wherever it is, and one or two other such places, etc., and you claim that you've managed to get an incredible kind of trade deal because it's been worked out in advance that the sheikh will, you know. Uh, say that he's going to buy X amount of uh, British shellfish because no one else will. Um, uh, and, uh, and uh, I mean, I'm sh- I, I don't know how it is that you actually manage to itemise what trade you got as a result of the Royal Yacht going to I tell you what would be a good place. test. The good test would be, uh, would anybody be in favour of us just buying a yacht if it wasn't a Royal Yacht? Um, so, in other words, would would it be a good addition to our trading policy to buy a yacht 
in order to organise our trading meetings. The moment you ask it that way, it's obviously not the case, right? You do want to leverage the royal family because that is an advantage in creating trading deals and trading arrangements for business. But this it, ultimately, it isn't idiotic to do a feasibility study or to consider the question, but it probably would be a mistake to do it, right? No, 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 I, mean, I don't no, think no, it's Danny, like, Danny, the what most you're missing stupid out here, thing ever, but I don't think I know, it's a good idea. But Danny, what you're missing out here, for, for a reason I understand, is the fantasy that lies behind because. <laughs> No, it is. It is the fantasy. It's the fantasy about how things should work, uh, and maybe actually even it's part of the fantasy behind David Cameron ending up lobbying for Lex Greenspan and, and and phoning Rishi Sunak. It's this kind of notion that if you're just kind of like these other people sufficiently, and you went to the same kind of place, or you call yourselves royalty, or you call yourselves a, a you know whatever it is, whatever it is, it was you can you can somehow you can somehow grease your way to getting a kind of better deal by the by the force of your personality or your kind of position right. and to be able to do it with the word royal and on the water kind of speaks to some of the most sort of atavistic I, british I concepts no i think that's i don't think that's true david i'd love to because obviously it's very witty i'd love to say i also thought it was true but i don't um i i think that i think that does underestimate that there are real advantages in fact funnily it's a very oh, good example that, Danny, that you raised. i don't think japanese, anybody would be that bothered if the japanese the trade Lex minister thing if they didn't think it might work that sort of approach if we got the truth Danny, is that Danny, that, Danny, that Danny. sort of approach does occasionally work. Danny, if we got uh, pictures of the Japanese trade minister arriving up the Thames on a yacht <laughs> to come for a meeting with Liz Truss, we'd think they'd gone completely mad. Well, I, <laughs> that is, the, I, I'm not in favour of doing it, um, uh, but I don't think we would. Okay, um, listen, but uh, partly, because I'm, partly because I'm conscious of time, and we've slightly touched on the royals as well. Um, the other thing I just wanted to t- discuss with you was um, Prince... I mean, the other problem, of course, with the royal yacht is that the, exactly which royal is, A, not too old to be dispatched to the high seas, and B, not too much of a disgrace. But anyway, let's focus on, let's focus on Prince Philip and this argument of uh, the coverage of Prince Philip, complaints about the coverage of Prince Philip, complaints about the complaints about the coverage of Prince Philip. Um, it, was it too much to have non-stop wall be BBC coverage? Was it too much to have 100,000 complaints about it? What do you think, David? Um, uh, the answer is yes, it was too much. Um, although having worked for the BBC in the past, and actually for a brief time having had responsibility for the Royal Obits, and I can tell you that back in the 1990s they were kind of really weird. There was one for the Queen Mother that had uh, a bit with a newsreader from Pathé News talking about how Native Americans in Canada were meeting the Great White Mother, and you can imagine how that would have uh, would have gone down. I mean, uh, essentially, we're caught on the cusp here between the kind of sepulchral tones uh, of royalism that would have worked in the fifties and sixties, and the modern and <clears throat> and if you like the modern era, and that was very well expressed by somebody in the Telegraph getting very cross about the difference between how Prince William and Prince Harry had talked about the Duke of Edinburgh and they described Prince Harry as being Californian when actually all he was was relatively modern. This is how young people it's how it's how young people talk. We there is so much choice now that to turn off most of the BBC channels for an entire day in order to repeat yourself and regurgitate this stuff in a particular kind of form of you know, solemn a nation mourns. When what we're talking about is we should have been celebrating the life of a 99-year-old man who managed to die at home, as most of us want to do, etc. But no, we had had to parcel it up in this kind of sub- 
uh, Richard Dimbleby-ish way, as if we were back, <laughs> as if we were back in the fifties and sixties. And of course, people didn't like it, and they voted with their feet, and they voted with their complaints. Now, the BBC says it's taking stock at the end of this week, and what it means it's doing is it's considering that when the Queen dies whether or not it really wants to do what it's just done for the Duke of Edinburgh for a day, for an entire week? And the answer is, it probably doesn't. Is there, my sort of slight feeling was, it was probably something which seemed fine in the planning meetings, and you only really discovered it as a society we're on the cusp of a change, and uh, once you've done it, and once you are sitting through the sixth hour of the yeah. sort of one-show special with Can I say, first of Penelope all, who... Keith... Who, who says that people didn't want it, right? The fact that 100,000 people well, complained the most is certainly watched, an indication that some people didn't want Because the most watched thing on Friday was Gogglebox, ultimately. It's certainly true that, that some people didn't want it. But who, who, um, that's not to say that everybody thinks it was a bad idea. Secondly, the, the second question is, how much is the correct amount of coverage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? There's no objective correct amount of coverage. Um, the, the, uh, so um, you're, you're, you're making entire entirely making judgments. Hold, hold on, and the third that thing... question goes back to you. How much, then, do you think is too much? Well, I, I, I think that this was a perfectly reasonable amount. Um, and because, because one of the things that I'm also factoring in is that um, the BBC is the national broadcaster and this was a national event. And I think that some, uh, that some symbolic importance is attached to that. Um, and I probably do have a different view of the symbolic importance of the monarchy, certainly to you, David, and, and possibly to you too, Matt. And I, 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 considering that people are, are able to watch other things if they want, I don't think it's inappropriate for the BBC to do as it did. Um, I think that actually, was actually a reasonable editorial actually, judgment given its role. Because I think actually the plans for its it role and the monarchy's role as national broadcaster and national, um, and national uh, institution is very important. Daniel Finkstein and David Ivanovich then. Of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. You just get yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my chat with Lord Saville. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, it's time for this. Public inquiries. How you go about setting one up? Everyone expects some sort of inquiry into uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, but exactly how do you go about uh, doing it? We can now speak to Lord Savile, former Justice of the Supreme Court, who chaired the Bloody Sunday Inquiry, which was published in 2010. Good morning. Uh, good morning to you. Now, I, I'm really... Can, can you hear me all I right? can. I can. Now, we can hear you loud and clear. We can hear you loud and clear. Good. Before we get into the sort of the general um, approach to uh, an inquiry, I'm really interested into how you... When you got the call, was it in, in 1998, Tony Blair first announced uh, the Bloody Sunday inquiry, um, looking into events from the 30th of January 1972. So how do you... What, what goes through your mind when you get, when you get that call and are asked to do it? And how do you first set about approaching, looking at events from, from sort of uh, 25, 26, 27 years earlier? Well, I think the first thing to do is to gather together an expert staff to help you. And um, um, I was lucky because I had a, a large number of extremely able people uh, who were able to assist in the necessary preparation. You've actually uh, just been speaking to one of them in the form of Peter Jones, uh, who um, probably knows more about public inquiries than I've had hot dinners because he has <laughs> taken part in a, in a large number of them. And uh, I have his a copy of his book, which is, uh, in my view at least, uh, required reading from now on for anybody who is going to launch into conducting a public inquiry. And how do you go about, because, I mean, as and when there is some sort of inquiry into the pandemic, I assume that it's not going to be a quarter of a century into the future. How much of a problem was it for you looking into events which had happened so far uh, before? Because obviously, I, mean, I think you spoke with two and a half thousand witness statements, but obviously, you know, people's recollections, uh, naturally, uh, their memories, you know, change over time. Uh, Trying to get hold of documents and that sort of thing. Was, was that something you, you came up, up against as being a problem? Oh, it was a problem, and it took uh, nearly two years to gather together sufficient uh, evidence, documentary films, witnesses, and so on, uh, before we were ready to um, uh, begin the public part of the inquiry. Uh, it was <laughs> nearly 30 years before, and as you've just said, people's memories are fallible. But we were lucky, because in the end, we were able to collect a great deal of contemporary uh, evidence both in the form of film footage and indeed in the form of statements that have been taken at the time. So um, uh, it was a long task and we always had to bear in mind, as I've just said, that people's memories are fallible. <laughs> but in the end we had sufficient material to enable us to look, uh, I hope, very carefully indeed at uh, what happened over those 20 minutes so long ago. And you, you, of course, your inquiry concluded that uh, the soldiers uh, on Bloody Sunday fired the first shot, uh, the Parachute Regiment soldiers opening fire on a civil rights march. 13 people were killed. You were particularly critical of the army uh, and that finding that the soldiers fired the first shot. Obviously, that came after previous inquiry. It had uh, been done very quickly and had come to a different conclusion. So how, how much did you sort of have to bear in mind what had gone before? Or did you sort of have to wipe your mind completely almost and approach this as if you'd known nothing uh, of, of the situation? Well, it, it's the latter. Um, we obviously looked at the um, Widgery inquiry because apart from anything else, a lot of evidence was given at that inquiry, which was very much more contemporary than uh, the, the job we were doing. 
So we looked very carefully at the evidence. We didn't uh, look particularly carefully at the conclusions Lord Widgery reached because we weren't sitting as a court of appeal from Lord Widgery. We were doing a completely new inquiry starting from scratch. And of course, in the end, we looked at a very great deal more evidence than, than he did in the 11 weeks that he took. It was, I think, in the end, a very good lesson is you cannot hurry these things if you're going to do a thorough and fair job. You've got to take your time and you've got to make sure that you have gathered together as much material as is reasonably possible. And the other important factor throughout uh, is to make sure you're being fair to all concerned. The soldiers were bitterly criticised at the uh, bloody Sunday inquiry, but um, we gave them every opportunity to give their side of the account. And that I thought was particularly important because if you're not careful in a public inquiry, you can make findings which aren't like criminal convictions, but can still have a disastrous effect on the people you criticise. So they have to have a fair opportunity to put their side of the case. Turning our attention to the, the uh, this idea of an inquiry into the past 12 months, the handling of the pandemic. I mean, as you pointed out, you, you spent 12 years looking at the events of a few minutes on one afternoon in Northern Ireland. This is already going to be looking at at least 12 months, probably looking at planning before that. How daunting a task do you think that would be for someone to take on? Uh, well, it's going to be fairly daunting. I mean, we um, uh, you're quite right. It was a, an event that lasted 20 minutes. But what was very necessary was to look at what had happened in the weeks, months and indeed years before to see how this state of affairs came to exist. Uh, and that took a lot of time and a lot of research. Uh, if you're going to conduct a, an inquiry, and I would have hoped and expected it would be a public inquiry into Covid, then the first thing to do is to define your terms of reference very carefully. As Peter Jones said a few minutes ago, if they're wide um, or wider than they should be, then you're going to waste a great deal of time and money. Uh, so the first question for any government setting up a public inquiry uh, is to be very careful indeed as to how they frame the terms of reference. They mustn't, of course, be too narrow, otherwise people will complain about that. But the, it's, a, it's a problem. And with COVID, it's a, it's a very substantial problem because you're clearly not, I think, going to look simply at the events in this country. You're going to have to look at the events worldwide in order to provide the context in which the government took the action it did. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? If you, 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 know, you could have a public inquiry which just focused on PPE procurement, uh, which you know would, would be a very focused thing, but it would exclude everything else. But if you just do every decision, every utterance, every um, uh, political uh, position, every scientific position over the last 12 months, both here and abroad, that's going to become really unwieldy as well. I suppose the, the thing is, does it need to have, unlike the Body Sunday inquiry, which wanted to get to the truth of what had happened... This might be more about sort of lessons that ultimately we are unlikely to find ourselves in exactly the same situation again. So what, what usefully can we learn this time round uh, from, uh, from what's happened over the past 12 months so that similar mistakes are not made in broadly similar circumstances in the future? 
I think you're absolutely right about that. I think the, the aim of any inquiry into COVID and the way the government reacted uh, only really has value if we can learn lessons from it and um, see both what they did right and uh, what I think they then acknowledged themselves were mistakes. And um, with, the, with the idea, unlike the bloody Sunday inquiry, of not finding out everything that happened, but trying to learn the lessons of the events of the last uh, 18 months. And what, what do you think is the right time scale? I mean, 25, nearly 30 years seems like too long between the events and the, the start of, of a full inquiry. But starting one now in the midst of it all probably is, is too soon. So what, what do you think is the right time scale? Is it almost better for the purposes of an inquiry if the people involved, the politicians, the scientists and so on, aren't still in senior roles? That Maybe you might get a bit more honesty from them if they were... Uh, you know, when we saw the, the Chilcot inquiry into uh, the Iraq war, Tony Blair was no longer prime minister. Lots of those people who were in those situations were probably more open than if they'd still been at the top of government. Well, um, uh, that's a difficult question to answer because um, uh, in one sense, the earlier you have it, the fresher the evidence, um, uh, the fresher people's memories. On the other hand, um, uh, to hold it now, for example, I think it would be extremely wrong because we haven't got through the covid um, epidemic yet and there may still be good lessons to be learned in the coming months so I don't think I could really answer that well I, I think the, the the only answer I could give let, is let's see how it goes for the next six months say um, and if we can get rid of uh, Covid as an epidemic uh, then at that stage one should start thinking very carefully about whether or not it's appropriate then to have an inquiry so if, if but we... I, I think the fact that people may still be in, in office or recently retired it isn't, isn't, isn't vital. Um, uh, there, are, there have been inquiries where um, um, the people have still been in office or in positions of authority where they made the decisions in question and have to come along and justify them. Uh, and what about the time scale? I mean, given that, I mean, if you said it's sort of six months, or even if it's... Let them a bit longer. Maybe a decision taken at the end of this year, early next year. I mean, we're not going to get the results of any inquiry before the next election, are we? And, you know, previous experience suggests even the one after that might be um, uh, uh, ambitious too. So I sort of wonder whether those people who want a public inquiry because they want Boris Johnson in the dock to face the music and that sort of thing are likely to be disappointed. It's not a quick turnaround thing. What's the time scale that you think we should oh, be looking you're at? You're quite right. It's not a turnaround. I mean, take the Grantville inquiry. That was a single event, but is still, still ongoing with an immense amount of evidence, of expert and others, uh, which are being assessed by um, Martin Morbeck, who is uh, possibly the best possible choice for a uh, somebody to run a public inquiry, uh, and who is, in my view, doing a marvellous job. Uh, so um, uh, there are people, of course, who uh, want bitterly to criticise the government. Uh, there are no doubt others who think that the government, by and large, did the best it could in the circumstances. That, I think, is, is not the right aim. The right aim, uh, as you yourself have suggested, uh, is to try and learn some lessons because uh, according to scientists, this is not the last pandemic we're going to get. 
I just wonder whether you'd be you'd be tempted if you got the call. Would you would you put yourself through a second I, public inquiry? I think I've I think I've done my public inquiries <laughs> for my career, Matt. Thank you very much for, for the for the suggestion. But I think on the whole, um, you want somebody um, well younger, uh, younger apart from anything else. Um, but um, uh, I would mention one thing. Uh, You've su you suggested, or I think Peter suggested, that there have been inquiries in the past which have been uh, parliamentary uh, committee inquiries. Now, they are, in my view, not in the least um, good for public inquiries of this kind where governments have been criticised. The, the great example was the Marconi scandal back in the early part of the 19th, 19th century where um, Marconi got the Empire contract to provide radio. And shortly before that was announced, a, a number of members of parliament bought and sold large numbers of Marconi shares, making a lot of money. So they decided to have a public in, uh, a, a committee, a parliamentary committee inquiry, which was a disaster because the committee divided on party lines those in the opposition thought this was one of the worst cases of corruption they'd ever seen. And the government uh, uh, members thought that nothing untoward had happened at all. And it was a result, as a result of that that they passed the first Inquiries Act in the 1920s to put the thing on a proper basis. The new Act, 2005, I have some criticisms of part of it, but uh, it does the same thing. You, you must have an independent inquiry which is impartial and which can act thoroughly and fairly. And I'm afraid with parliamentary committees, uh, that is not always the case. Politics does tend to come into it. And also, that you know, they tend to turn these things around in a few months, which I suspect this one won't. I think Peter Jones is uh, uh, still um, uh, with us. Are you there, Peter? I am. I am indeed. I wonder well, how... can, I, can I interrupt and say good morning to you, Peter? Oh, yes, Peter, of course. It... Of course, yeah, there uh, we are. And, and one of these days when... Um... Uh, when we're free to go about, perhaps we can meet up for lunch. Ah. Yes, very good to speak to you again. I haven't spoken to you in years. I'm glad you're well. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I'm glad that, you know, I'm glad that we're facilitating lunch bookings. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, Peter, I wonder, given the number of public inquiries you've been involved in, is this one that you, you'd relish being a part of? Has anyone in the government approached you for ideas of how to go about doing this? I don't, not to my knowledge, no. And <laughs> I, I think this will be a very interesting inquiry. The timing will be interesting, as you say. Um, I think that we make a mistake, though, if we think that there is only one inquiry likely to be in the offing uh, and that the UK government is the sole arbiter as to when that will happen. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Scottish and Welsh administrations have already committed to having a public inquiry, and it is entirely conceivable that the timetable for the UK government could be driven by the devolved administrations setting up their public inquiries first. And that could become a very fragmented uh, situation where you've got different public inquiries in different nations of the UK looking at the same issues but at different timings, everybody taking the same evidence but possibly coming to different conclusions. So I think, albeit at the timings, I, I can't see a public inquiry being imminent. Certainly discussions between the devolved administrations and the UK government as to how this is going to work on a four-nations basis, the sooner that that sort of discussion happens, uh, the better, because I think that is quite a, a jigsaw puzzle to have to put together before you even start. 
just before I let you both go, then a final a final question. The the bloody Sunday inquiry cost almost two hundred million pounds and took twelve years. Your your best guess for how long uh, a coronavirus inquiry will will take, and what would the bill be? I'll start with you, Peter. The quickest inquiry I've ever done was Sir Robert Francis's Mid Staffordshire uh, NHS Foundation Trust public inquiry, which is really a microcosm of how the NHS is functioning. So it, it does bear some resemblance to this. That was done in two years, working 24-7. Uh, and uh, So I can't imagine it being less than two years, two to three years, uh, and um, with a budget accordingly. Um, but, but, you know, very rarely does a public statutory inquiry come in at less than 15 to 20 million pounds. That's just how they are, depending on how many participants there are uh, being paid out of the public purse. Uh, and uh, what about you, Lord Savile? What's your what's your your hunch? I, I really have. I really couldn't put a time on it. It, it, it um, um, however it's phrased, if it looks for lessons to be learned, it, there's going to be a lot of lot of material to look at, uh, a lot of witnesses to listen to. Uh, I would um, uh, I would be amazed if it was done in less than say seven or eight years from from the start. Um, but that's a pure pure guess, not based on anything at all. It could take substantially longer. Yeah, I think those people who think that you know they're going to have have a uh, stick to beat Boris Johnson with in the space of a few months are going to be uh, uh, are going to be disappointed. It's been really lovely to speak to you and to get that proper insight into the process of all of this. Peter Jones, there, former head of inquiries and investigations at Evershed Sutherland, uh, co-author of the Practical Guide to Public Inquiries and, and the, a veteran of several uh, public inquiries. Uh, we also heard, of course, from Lord Savile, former Justice of the Supreme Court, who chaired the Bloody Su- Sunday Inquiry, which took twelve years uh, to complete. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.